0: So what would you do if you had a million bucks? We were just writing checks today. Can you think of all the things that would do? You know, in fact, in this room, there's so many people. There's probably a few people here that actually have a million dollars. My phone number is 919 <laughs> I'm kidding. We're in a series called The Story. And we're up to a guy's life named Solomon who actually did have a million dollars. He had a lot more than a million dollars. And today we're going to be talking about, well, how did that affect his life? And how did it help him or hinder him from making the kind of decisions that he need to, needed to make? There's some Bibles coming down the aisles right now. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers will give you one of those. It's yours to keep if you'd like one. Or if you'd just like to read along, you can borrow it. And you can also just look on the screen as I read from God's Word today. Well, Solomon, King Solomon, was the son of King David. King David was a guy who really made some big mistakes in spite of all of his wonderful leadership characteristics, all the great things that he did. He made some really big mistakes. And he was able to get that turned around and, and put his trust back in God and live for God again. And by the end of his life, in the Old Testament, it says that David died and was buried with his ancestors. But before he, got, before he did that, he got to a point the king that would follow him, which ended up being his son, Solomon. And one of the things that Solomon was going to get to do that his dad didn't get to do was to build the temple for God's people. They had worshipped God in a tabernacle, which was like portable church, like a tent. But they wanted their own temple, and God had promised them that. And David was supposed to build it, but he made so many mistakes he didn't get to. And so Solomon got to build the temple eventually. And Solomon comes on the scene in the book of 1 Kings, and God is asking him a question. He's 20 years old, around the age of 20, and God says to Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to do for you. I remember being 20. Anybody remember being 20 or are you around 20? Or can't wait to be 20? All of us are covered. And God says you're around 20 years old, whatever you want. You know what I would ask for? I had three more wishes, right? That's what everybody, I want three more wishes. I want whatever I want, and then I want to ask again and again and again. Solomon demonstrated wisdom even before he asked God for what he was about to ask for. So God says, whatever you want, young man, I will give it to you. Solomon was a little worried, he was young, he had taken on the leadership of this nation, there was a little bit of turmoil going on as to who should and would become king, and ended up being him, and he's a little concerned, and he says this to God. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 3. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And that, that one request from Solomon gives some insight into his heart at that point in his life about what he valued. Because what would most 20-year-olds ask for? Stuff. Give me some stuff. Make life a little bit easier for me. Make it so I don't have to work so hard. Make it easier, God. That's what I want. And, and while you're at it, could you get rid of some of my enemies, people that don't like me? Just go ahead and let them get run over by a truck or something just to get them out of my life. That's what most people, humans, would ask for. And God acknowledges that. And he says, you know what? Since you haven't asked for all those things, you haven't asked for wealth, you haven't asked me to go ahead and kill all of your enemies, God says this, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you've not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. So Solomon allowed his heart to be aligned with the things of God. He had alignment with God, and therefore when he asked God for something, he received it. A lot of people say, well, I pray and I ask and nothing ever happens. Well, the example from scripture is when his heart was aligned with God, God responded with giving him more than he could have ever imagined. He got wisdom. People loved him. He, just imagine. He didn't have to worry what people thought. He didn't have to think about it. He knew what they thought. They loved him. They thought he was great. Now, you probably have said, I don't care what people think. And that's not totally true. Even if you're one of those rough people that say, like, I don't care what people think. I just do whatever I want. You know, deep down inside, you do care what people think. And it does affect you, how other people view you and think about you. I could stand up here all day and say, I don't care what you think. I'm going to go and I'm going to lead and I'm going to do things because I don't care what you think. And if you ever hear me say that, you can go, "Uh uh-oh, he's not telling the truth. Because I do care what people think. You care what people think. Solomon didn't have to worry about that. He already knew what they thought. They thought he was great. They thought he was awesome. He quickly became the most loved king ever. He enjoyed 40 years of peace in the nation of Israel. He was revered as wise. People came from all around the world to hear his wisdom. You can read that same wisdom in the Old Testament today. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs. He wrote over 1,000 songs. There's There's a book in the Old Testament called Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. It's the same thing, depending on what translation you have. And it's songs that Solomon wrote. People thought he was wonderful, he was wise, and they looked up to him. He was a builder. He got to build the temple that his dad never got to build for God's people so they could sense and feel and worship the presence of God among them. He got to build the wall that surrounded Jerusalem and protected the city. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks and how significant that was. He built these beautiful palaces to live in. He bought cities. He bought stuff. In fact, if you go through and look in the Old Testament, all of the things that he had, and you put that into today's dollars, it's $874 billion. You could buy a lot of peace with that. you? (laughs) You could make sure things were peaceful. You could get a lot of friends. He probably had tons of friends. He was... Filthy, filthy, rich. It says this about him in first Kings chapter ten. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had fourteen hundred chariots and twelve thousand horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful the sycamore fig trees in the foothills. That'd be like saying silver is as, as common as a pine tree. It's everywhere for everybody he had wealth he had success so did his nation so it probably makes you think well, what did he do with all that money well he did with it what you'll do when you win the lottery you give half up to the church right Isn't that what you usually say you see that big number up there on the billboard on 440 and you're like oh honey if we won that there wouldn't be a need around us the church wouldn't need anything none of our friends would need anything but that's not what he did with his money It's probably not what you do with yours because statistically that's not what people do with it. This is what he did. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2 he says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure and find out what's good. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took great delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. He did whatever he wanted. There was nothing he laid his eyes on that he couldn't buy. If you're like me, you have a list, at least mentally, of some things you would like to purchase. Now tell the truth, right? You do. I do. He didn't have to make a li- he didn't have to have a bucket list, it was just a list. Cuz everything he wanted could happen. Every experience he wanted to have, he could do it. Everything he wanted to buy, he could buy. He had an amazing opportunity in front of him. But he got off track a heart that began at a 20-year-old boy being aligned with the purposes of God, changed. And he started to think differently. And he forgot about what God asked him to do and asked all people to do. God was very specific to the nation of Israel. He said, be careful, guys, don't marry foreign women. Not because God's racist, not because God thought foreign women were bad, but foreign women worshipped other gods. And God knew the heart of man. And he knew. If those guys start marrying foreign women, they'll do whatever they want. They'll go wherever they want them to go. And so God said, be careful, don't marry foreign women because they will turn your heart after other gods. But Solomon, evidently believing he was so wise, thought he could handle it, so he had 700 wives. Seven hundred. Seven hundred. And many of them were like business transactions with other kings, and they gave their daughters, but 700 wives, 700 households. And on top of that, he had 300 what the Bible calls concubines. That's kind of like, I don't know, a stripper, a pole dancer, something like that, that that he just had in his house at his his disposal to do whatever whenever he wanted. So he's got a 1,000 women surrounding him, this wisest man who ever lived. And then he gets closer to the end of his life and he starts to write down how this life has affected him all this money all this fame all this popularity all of those wives now if a wise man gets ready to speak you want to listen right when i listen to someone who's lived several more years than me and and they're saying here's what you ought to do and here's how this should work i i perk up and i listen So listen to what Solomon says. Listen to the wisdom that he's getting ready to give us later in life when he's looking back and reflecting on all of the things that he's done, all that he's accomplished. Here's what he says. Ecclesiastes 2. So I hated life. So I hated life because of all the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What changed from, God, give me wisdom to guide these people because they're an awesome people, and I want to do a great job for you, and God says, I'll give you that, plus I'll give you more. What, what changed from him being that person to a person that looks back at life and says, I hate it. I hate life. It's worthless. It's just an endless chasing after the wind. His attitude was affected in every way. His attitude about possessions, his attitude about leadership, his attitude about God, his attitude about women. In, in Proverbs chapter 27, he says, a quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of rain on a leaky roof. I mean, can you see him gritting his teeth and writing it down while he's hearing somebody ying it or 700 in his ear? And later he said, it would be better to die than have to deal with this. So how could a man like that, who had all this wisdom, who had all of this money, who had every relational opportunity known to man to have a healthy relationship, how could he declare life meaningless? And how could he say, I hate it? It's because he started valuing the wrong things. Because, as Solomon would tell us all, When you start to value something, your heart follows it. And when Solomon started to value things over God, over wisdom, over faith, over growing closer to God, when when Solomon started to value things of the earth more than the creator of the earth, things really got off track. See, getting what I want doesn't lead to a great life. People think that you probably taught that. Everything around us tells us that. But the truth is, getting what you want, it doesn't lead to a great life. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Acquiring is not the pathway to a satisfying life. And yet we spend all of our lives doing what? Acquiring. So we can move to a warmer climate at some point later in life and enjoy it. It's acquire, 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 and then get to the end, and many people say, what's this all about? What am I doing this for? Was it really just about the next purchase, the next conquest, the next thing? Another one of Solomon's reflections in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? More and more and more and more. And Solomon is saying it's useless. It's worthless. The word that he used, he would have written all this down in Hebrew. The word he used for satisfied is a word that means to sit at the table and eat and never be filled to just eat and eat and eat and eat, and you're still hungry. And Solomon realized later in life, I've been sitting at the wrong table. I've been sitting at the table of stuff, of things that I want, and I've been eating at that table. And the more I eat at that table, the less satisfied I am, and I can just eat and eat and eat and acquire and acquire and acquire, and it never leads to satisfaction. One time, John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest Americans, it was the richest one at one time, was asked, how much money is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more. And that's most people. Because in survey after survey, when you ask people, no matter what income level, how much money do you really need to really have a satisfying life? Consistently, the answer is double where they are. No matter where they are, they think, well, if I could have twice what I have, it'd be perfect. See, when it comes to money, you have a choice. You can use it or it can use you. And money is happy to rule your life. It's happy to take over. It's happy to guide you in whatever direction it wants you to take. Or you can take it and you can use it. You can tell it what to do. You can tell it how to feel. You can keep it from making you feel a certain way. And that's all Solomon is dealing with. He's saying, I've got all I've ever wanted. I've climbed to the top in every way in this life that you possibly can and I've gotten to near the end and it's empty and it's hopeless and so he ends his writings in the book of Ecclesiastes by saying this now that all has been heard here's the conclusion of the matter fear God keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man fear God keep his commandments you mean be afraid of God? Like I'm afraid of the boogeyman? Like I'm afraid something bad might happen to me? That's not what he's talking about when he uses the word fear. He's talking about put God at a place in your life where his love, his grace has influence on what you do. It's, it's put, fearing God is putting God in a place of respect to where your relationship with God Your knowledge of God, your experience of God has profound influence on the decisions you make. When it comes to money, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to career, when it comes to school, your relationship with God, when you fear Him, has influence on those decisions that you make. That's what Solomon is trying to say. You want to know what the duty of man is? Allow God to influence every single part of your life. Allow God to get in there and make a difference in every single decision that you make. And he could say that because early in life, he understood that and he practiced it. He wrote in one of his Proverbs, one of his Proverbs of wisdom that people still today can read, that they've been reading for a few thousand years. When he said this, Proverbs chapter three, beginning at verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Solomon is saying trusting God leads to a satisfying life. That's what it's all about. Now, he got this early on, and he was saying, you want decisions to be easier? They're never going to be easy. There's always going to be difficult decisions in life, but you want them to be easier? You want to feel like you're walking the way you need to be walking? Then start with this very basic idea in life that you trust God over everything else, over your logic, over someone else's advice, over what wisdom you think you have. Trust God over that, and what's the promise that will be made? what's the promise to us that's made? Then your paths will be straight. You'll know which way to go. Decisions will all of a sudden be a little bit easier. And understanding when you do make a bad decision, well, what does that mean? Well, that's going to come a little bit easier when you start with trust and leaning on God's wisdom and God's understanding and not yours. So how are you going to get out of the mess you're in? Well, stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to do it your way and start doing it God's way. Sit down and eat at the right table for a while and you will all of a sudden see, hey, these decisions that I thought were difficult, that I thought were just going to consume my life, all of a sudden when God's wisdom is inserted, it may hurt, it may be difficult, but it's really clear what I'm supposed to do. It's never a pathway to an easy life but it's a pathway to clarity and understanding what am I supposed to do next when I trust God, lean on His wisdom, it becomes very clear. And he goes on to say, oh, by the way, you want wealth? You want, you want to be content with what you have? You want to enjoy the money that God's blessed you with? Then trusting God means being generous. That's what he said, honor God, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. He's saying there is a connection between blessings and generosity. Now, not if I give God 1500 bucks, he's going to give me 3000 and the car I always wanted. That's not what he's talking about. If you hear anybody saying that, just turn the channel. It's not the way it works. But there is a connection between the generosity that we practice in our lives and the amount of contentment we have with what we have and with what we're able to earn in this life and the amount of joy and blessings that we have. If you struggle with things controlling your life, with material things, with worrying about money all the time, the best way to solve that is give some away. Be generous. Because if you, if you give it away, it can't control you anymore. And Solomon is saying, honor God with your first fruits. And what he's saying is, before you do anything else, you're trusting God. He's making your path straight. You want blessing in your life? Start with Him. Start with Him with trust. Start with Him when it comes to your money and all of your stuff. You know, I've never met a person who was both generous and unhappy. Never. Every time I've met a person that I think that person's generous or I know their generosity story, they've never said, oh, I, I give stuff away and I'm generous, but I hate life. It's awful. It's terrible. Nothing ever goes right for me. I've never seen those two attitudes be existing at the same time in somebody's life. What, but what I see is when somebody's generous, whether it's 50 bucks, and that 50 bucks is a sacrificial gift, or it's $50,000, and that's a sacrificial gift. When people are generous, life is more enjoyable. It's true. And if, if I'm going to trust God, it means being generous. Generosity stops greed and materialism in its tracks. So what would you do with a million dollars? Probably what you're doing with whatever amount of money you have right now. It probably wouldn't change. In fact, survey after survey shows that as people get more, they give away less. So you may be, you think, oh, if I had more money, I would be more generous. That's not what statistics say. Statistics say as income goes this way, percentage giving goes this way. And I've had conversations with those people. Well, well, when I was it's harder. You don't understand. I give this much to the government i got to do this because some of you thought, well, I wouldn't really have a million. I only have 750000 because I'd have to pay 25% of it in tax, right? Some of you thought that when I said if you had a million dollars, that's immediately where you went. And that's how some people think. But the people who choose to be generous, the million dollars, that would affect their life. But it wouldn't affect it because they would all of a sudden buy all this stuff for themselves. It would affect it because of the generosity that would come from it and if you're struggling with money right now the best thing you can do is figure out how can i be the most generous person that i can be that's why we offer that financial peace university at least once a year and you're gonna have an opportunity to sign up for that so you can manage your money god's way if you've never been generous i want to challenge you to try it i want to challenge you we're just almost a couple of weeks into 2014 i want to challenge you to do the 2014 generosity challenge And that means be generous. Give away a percentage of your income. And if you're new to LifePoint and and you don't yet believe in our vision enough to say, I'm gonna write checks towards it, let me just tell you, giving to the local church is the best bang for your buck that you can get. It's the best return on investment with generosity because the local church is what shares the message of Christ, which helps save people for eternity. When the church shares the message of Christ, it affects people not just now, but for eternity. So giving to the local church is a big deal. But if for some reason you don't believe in our vision enough or, or you're new and you're not sure yet, give somewhere else. Find a place that, says that, that is clear that the message of Christ is what motivates people and the message of Christ is shared and be generous towards that. And you might think, where do I start? Well, 10% is a great place to start. Maybe you can't do that. Give something away, sell something, whatever you got to do to create a way for you to experience and practice generosity. Not because we need money, but because you need it to be able to live a more satisfying life. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again have an article for everybody in here that wants it. It's called, Less is More, A Suburban Mom Resists Consumer Culture to Increase Your Generosity. It's out at the info booth. Uh, we may not have one for everybody, but if you don't get one, you just email me on the back of the program. my email address, and I'll make sure you get a digital copy of this. This is an inspiring article written by uh, the wife of one of my best friends. It's a pastor, he's a pastor of a church out in Kansas City, and how they live 2013 with the decision that they were going to be as generous as possible. So take a look at that. It will inspire you as you consider, am I going to take this generosity challenge or not? And I want to hear your stories. As you make the decision, you know what? I am going to give. I am going to give to this thing or give, more, give to the church or decide to really consistently do that. I would love to hear your story. If you just go to lifepointchurch.com slash story, You can share your story. There's a way on there you can put, you can click on generosity and share your story about how God has worked in your life because of it. Now you may think, yeah, but Solomon had God say, whatever you want, I'll do it. And you may think, well, that's not even realistic. Well, a couple thousand years after that, when Jesus came on the scene and Jesus started to share his saving message with people who desperately needed to hear it, Listen what he says to them in John 14, beginning at verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. See, it's clear from Jesus, I can get all that my heart desires when I align my heart with the purposes of God. Because the things I ask for will change. Now for some of us, If we were asked today, we would think, well, that means Jesus will give me the job and the car and the house and the 401k or whatever it is that I want. He'll give me all of that. And maybe that's true. And maybe he will. And maybe you've been blessed in that way in your life. But I promise you that generosity will never fail to be met with blessing in some way in your life. And Jesus is saying, align your desires with mine and I'll give you anything that you want. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this example of Solomon. Father, may we learn from him, learn from his mistakes, learn from his successes, and learn from his wisdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.